standing and turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is a blue English Standard Version right in front of you. Job chapter 19, I'll be reading verses 23 through 29. Job is about the middle of the Bible there. Job 19, verses 23 through 29. Before we hear God's word read, let us go humbly to him in prayer. By the light of your word, now incarnated, and through the light of the Spirit, now indwelling, open our eyes, we pray, to see your glorious gospel, O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Job chapter 19, verses 23 through 29. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, we close out a series, Christ in the Writings, this evening with a brief reflection from the book of Job. We began, you'll recall, we began this series in the book of Proverbs. We looked at chapter 8, and in that chapter we saw how the incarnate God, the Son of God, is the wisdom of God, is the Word of God. Next, Reverend Godwin, through Isaiah 61, reminded us of the true spirit of Christmas, uppercase S, spirited Son. In Song of Solomon, chapter 3, we felt the church's longing to behold her king and how the king meets her earnest longings. In Nehemiah this morning, we considered the incarnate Messiah's ministry of being commissioned by the Father, sent to earth, constructing the house of God, even amid contradiction, hostility, and with compassion, He consecrated the people of God, and he confessed their sins as their substitute. Although it is in competition, of these texts, tonight's surpasses all of them in the realm of suffering. Most of us are familiar with the book of Job, with the story of Job, and we don't have time tonight to detail all of it. But if any mere son of man could say that he has suffered the most, And without any seemingly just cause, it would have to be Job, wouldn't it? If you just read the first couple chapters, you know how horrible his state, how much he suffered. He lost his beloved and very many servants, his 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, and all of his children, seven sons and three daughters, all in a single day. He lost all of them, except for the servants who came to tell him how much he has lost. That wasn't all. 
He lost sound bodily health. From top to toenail, he was sorely afflicted. He lost also his wife's support. You recall, she urged him to curse God and then lead this world. Just curse God and die, Job. Be done with him. He is clearly done with you. And not only did he lose his family and his flock, but his righteous reputation was challenged. The whole book of Job is really about that righteousness and Job's desire for a redeemer, someone to hear his cause, his plea. So most of the book centers on an ongoing debate between Job and his three supposed friends, men who urge him to look within himself, to find what sin has caused all this suffering, and then to confess it. Oh, for the sake of Job, confess it. Nevertheless, Job maintained his innocence. He maintained his righteousness, not his sinlessness, but his righteous standing before God. He maintains it. And so we come to the climax of his heart's confession here in Job chapter 19. And this confession must always be in our hearts, must always be coming from our mouths as we face trials of various kinds in this fallen world of ours. The point this evening is this. Facing affliction, the suffering saint can always rest on the fact that his Redeemer lives. Now, Job helps us to know his view of the Redeemer from three key texts. The first one, which we didn't read, is Job 9, verses Verse 33, in Job 9.33, he says, There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. And in this verse, Job helps us to see our need for a mediator, one who can know our suffering. Job suffered much, and he felt helpless at times, with no one to hear his cause, with no one to give him justice. That's all he needed. That's all he wanted was justice. He needed, and he was expecting, a mediator, a redeemer, one who could, quote, lay his hand on us both. And by this, he indicates the ministerial role of mediation between himself and God, his judge, God, his creator. And like Job, all of us depend on the one who can reconcile us to our God, to the judge, to the creator. Job wondered earlier in chapter 9, how can a man be righteous before God? What a beautiful question. How can we be righteous? Which, of course, assumes that we aren't righteous, that we are sinners in desperate need of righteousness, in desperate need of a Redeemer. And although his mind was, was clouded with the shadows of the Messiah from the Old Testament, his words anticipated the Christ. And Paul brings clarity and certainty to Job's mind and to all of our minds. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Have you wondered how you can be righteous before God? Rest in Christ the Redeemer and wonder no more. There is only one mediator, the incarnate God-man, Jesus Christ. 
Maybe you, you aren't wondering how you can be made right before God. Perhaps this is old hat news. And it would be great if it were. And we rejoice if this is old news. But this is not old news that is, has gone sour. This is always good news that we are always, even now, made righteous before our God, not because of what we have done, but because of what the Redeemer has done for us, by earning that righteousness that we need because of our sin. The next text helps us continue to peer into Job's heart. Job 16, 19-21, he says this, Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. And so there is growing certainty in Job's heart here that there is even now, even as he is speaking in Job 16, there is even now a witness in heaven, one who can plead with his God the case of Job. Because again, Job has suffered unjustly. He has suffered greatly. Formerly, Although Job did not know this at the time, there was one who stood before God as Job's accuser, the adversary, Satan, the devil, the one who accuses the brethren before God. This is what John in Revelation 12, 10 says that Satan does day and night before our God. He doesn't grow tired of accusing us before our God telling God why we shouldn't be in communion with him, telling God why he shouldn't be in communion with us. Do you not see these supposed saints? Do you not see how they walk? Do you not see how they speak? Do you not hear their thoughts? Do you not see how they relate to one another? How can you, O God, be in communion with these? He regularly accuses us before God. And who of us can stand before the pure presence of God on our own? The psalm says, if God should count iniquities against us, who can stand? Satan doesn't have to make up stuff, though he does at times make up stuff. He doesn't have to. There's quite a bit of evidence, isn't there? If we are honest with ourselves, we, we do speak sinfully, we do think sinfully, we do act sinfully, we have sinful motives. Seems like every corner we turn, we are involved in some kind of sinful affair with our thoughts, with our words, with our deeds, with our motives. We never get it right. We never perfectly walk the walk. We never perfectly walk the, according to the calling to which we've been called. And so there's ample evidence that the accuser can bring before God. Say, look, see that? Who can stand if God should count iniquities? What cause do we have but a fruitless one, a foundation built on quicksand, a, a case closed or clothed with filthy rags? Yes, the adversary accuses us before our God, but he is not our witness in heaven who lives. The adversary exists, but he does not live. His existence is death from head to toe. Indeed, we could even say that Job's physical affliction 
could be projected onto Satan's top-to-bottom state of death. He is entirely death. He's full of darkness. There's no light in him at all. He is a miserable, unredeemed creature. And by contrast, Job's heavenly witness will not remain in heaven, but will argue the case of a man with God, as a son of man does with his neighbor. And here we see, again, a subtle but shadowy but certain pointer to the human nature of the coming Son of Man, the incarnate Messiah, the one who came from above to mediate for those below. Christ is, even now, our witness in heaven, for he came down to settle our case with his life. Oh, be full of hope, dear saints, that when you know the attacks The accusations of the adversary, the one whose soul is full of death, know, be full of hope, that the living Redeemer has settled all complaints against you. And you can say with Paul that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I am in Christ Jesus because of what Christ Jesus has done for me. We have the certainty in the final text of this evening our text that I read, Job 19, 23 through 27. One of the blessings of the living Redeemer is that he lasts. The accusations of the adversary may feel like they go on and on, world without end. You may think that your suffering is limitless and that its duration knows no end. Whatever trial, whatever affliction you are currently experiencing, if you are, you might think that There's no end to it. It just goes on and on and on. And Job was tempted to believe this as well. But this is not the promise that he clings to so tightly in these verses, is it? Job was confident that his Redeemer was his witness in heaven. And yet, we see that he longed for this Redeemer. How can that be? He's confident he's in heaven, and he longs for him. Because the Redeemer hadn't yet stood, as verse 25 says, at last on the earth. Literally, it says, upon the dust. At the last, upon the dust. And did you notice the irony of Job's words of prophecy in verse 23 and following? He wishes that his words would be inscribed in a book. And here they are. For all of us to hear his heart. To hear the, the cry of his heart, I, I know that my Redeemer lives. I have a witness in heaven. And here he is, shadows for, for Job. But we have more of the, the Bible, don't we? We have more of this word. He wished that his words would be engraved in the rock forever. He wanted his words for justice to be forever remembered. And so they were. They're written here on the solid rock, the Word of God. And proof of their inspiration is found in the indelible ink of the blood of Christ written all over it. And who said the rocks don't bleed? The rock, which is Christ, surely bled on Joe's behalf, surely bled on our behalf as well. He is our long-lasting Redeemer. Of this, Job is sure. In this we are confident, for the Redeemer stood upon the dust. 
And that is a reference in the book of Job to either death or to the grave. So he who was born a babe lived on this earth, died, was buried, and rose from the dead. And so Job's confidence that in his flesh he would one day see his God is our confidence as well. But no longer clouded with shadows of the Christ, but clearly in view because of the incarnate, risen Messiah. Be assured, dear saints, dear beloved of the Lord, that you shall see the risen Lord, that you too will be raised. You can be sure of this because the risen Lord was once born a babe in a manger, and that the incarnation was not the end of the story. He who began the good work of redemption in Christ's incarnation will surely finish it with our resurrection. And so let us all affirm with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives. Glory, hallelujah. Let's pray. O Father, etch in our spirits forever that Christ is with us by his Spirit, ruling and reigning over all his and our enemies. Let us rest our hope in this all the days of our lives. Let us know with greater and deeper confidence that our Redeemer lives. We are so thankful that he lived on this earth and that he lives by his resurrection and he is in heaven seated at your right hand, O Father, and he is working all things out in us and one day will come to get us. We know that our Redeemer lives. Glory, hallelujah, amen.